Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you. So wonderful is your love, God. It just doesn't make sense sometimes. God, we thank you for your peace, which passes all understanding, Lord, amidst the storms of life. God, we just praise you that we have a God that we can turn to that made the heavens and the earth and has the future in his hands. So God, we praise you today, the God of the heavens and the earth and of our lives. God, and we give you all the glory that's due to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. family church. I sort of chuckle when I say that because now that my son is three years old, we, I often go through the sermon with him as we go on walks. So he's always running around in the house saying, good morning family church, good morning family church. So it has been interesting and I still really am, if you guys want to do this, I'm still willing to give up my spot in preaching to let these guys continue to worship because they have done a phenomenal job. So we do thank the worship team right now. Let's give them a hand of applause. But today we're continuing our series in Philippians as Casey did a phenomenal job last week of laying the groundwork for today's message, right? As it was fascinating to understand the history of how God started the church at Philippi. As he used three unlikely individuals, right? As we know, God is in the business of using the ordinary or less than ordinary people to reveal his will and his glory. Amen? So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you today. With our lives, Father, we ask that you continue to lead us, Father, by your spirit today. We thank you for this time that we can come to you and glorify you today. And I ask, Father, that your spirit work mightily through us as a congregation, that we can be the people of God that are faithful to you. We praise and honor you. It's through Christ's name. Amen. The reoccurring theme that we will see in this book of Philippians is in Christ. We will see this theme weave throughout this letter. And I ask you, church, what does it mean to be in Christ? Because if we don't understand that basic foundation, this rest of sermon will not make any sense. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from England, said this, Saving faith is an immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by the virtue of God's grace. Or Andrew Murray, another giant in the faith, said this about living in Christ. Abide in Jesus, the sinless one, which means give all of self and its life and dwell in God's will and rest in his strength. This is what brings the power that does not commit sin. So in both of these quotes, church, we see that we have a balance of being totally devoted to Christ, but also totally dependent on him, right? Let me give you an example. Let's say I am a golf player. And if most of you know me, that you know that's not true. 
But let's say I am a golf player and I, I watch TV all the time. I watch the golf shows. I know all the pros. I have golf clubs. I also have a father-in-law who is obsessed with golf, if that counts too. And we, and, and let's say that's all. I have all the necessary gear and equipment to be a golfer, but I've never actually stepped on a golf course, nor have I ever swung a golf club. Am I a golfer? Am I a golfer? No, right? That's ridiculous, right? I have to actually play the game to be a golfer. But isn't that what the world looks at us sometimes, church? As many of us have Bibles, barely read them. We go to church weekly, right? Most of us go to church weekly and say we're, we're centered and focused and our lives are based on living for Christ. And yet, often... Many of us lack real love for God and others. And we wonder why the church, why the world often looks at us and says, man, those people are hypocrites. They don't preach what they say, right? Right? So we have to be faithful to God. So as we move forward with this idea of living in Christ, living in Christ does not mean once we've walked an aisle or that we prayed a sinner's prayer or that we were baptized. If we look at Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.9, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5.9. Paul says this. He says, we make it our goal. King James says, we make it our ambition. Literally, it's our ambition to please God, or to please Him, it says in the passage. Whether we're in the body or out, church, Paul's sole purpose was to do everything for God's glory. Church, do we wake up in the morning and live that way? Do we live our lives for God's glory? Do we do that? Because to live in Christ is a wholehearted, dedicated, single-minded devotion to love Christ, empowered, obviously, by the Spirit of God. Because we couldn't do any of that without the Holy Spirit rotting it and, and growing us in faith. So as we begin, as we think about this perspective of living in Christ, we realize that living in Christ transforms our lives. It doesn't just stay inward as a personal faith, but it actually, actually transforms into life change. We become different as individuals. We aren't the same people we were before we came to Christ, right? So the first reality we glean from the book of Philippians, is the fruit of joy. Is the fruit of joy. Joy is a byproduct of living a life built on the foundation of Christ. Christ leads us into an overflow of joy in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And joy is not shallow happiness that depends on how we're feeling in each moment of the day. That's not what we're talking about here as happiness depends on what is going on in the circumstances of life at that moment forth, for us. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances and the things going on in our lives, or even people. Sometimes we're often controlled by people. But when we are filled with joy, that fruit is being produced in us regardless of what's happening in our life. And I thought it would be good to wake some of you up this morning and I know a lot of the, the, the students, the teenagers, are pro probably really sad because school's about to end, right? And you're going to have to have summer vacation, and that's rough. 
And I wanted us to take a short little test this morning. So if you have your bullets in there, you'll see the joy test. The joy test. And what it has there is a statement, and then a yes or no by it. And what I did is answer each question if I was a person that was totally filled with joy. So the first statement says this. When change occurs, I am easily frustrated. When change occurs, I am easily frustrated. And the person that's filled with joy would say, no, I'm not easily frustrated when change occurs. Because remember, we're not controlled by circumstances or people anymore, right? We're controlled on what's happening inside of us by the power of the Spirit. Or, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but I'll go through a few more. When trials occur, I rest in God. Yes, when trials occur, I rest in God. That's a person that's filled with joy. Or, I am a worrywart. If you're filled with joy, you're not a worrywart. And in reality, I'll just say a quick little thing about this worry and fear thing that seems to go on in our church, and it's something I struggle with, but that is a grievous sin against God because when I'm filled with fear, I'm not loving God and others the way God intends me to. Not only that, but if I'm filled with worry, I'm not walking in faith. I'm usually trusting in myself or somebody else. So church, these are grievous sins against our God that we need to be working on as people. Next one, I am only loving life when I get what I want, right? I don't want you to answer that, wife, on that one. But um, my, life, my, my life would have joy if others would change. No, a person with joy would not say that. Or the last one, I am overwhelmed with thankfulness towards God. I am overwhelmed towards thankfulness towards God. So I want you to look at these in the future and maybe sometime this week to examine yourselves with these statements to see how you're doing with joy because a person living in Christ has real living joy. And this is something that maybe in the connect groups that you can go over also. Um, if we turn to Philippians 4.4. 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. I was going to sing the song, my wife said, don't do that. So I decided not to do that, but I almost really did. But in, in the literal Greek, it's, be joyful in the Lord always. Again, I will say, be joyful. That's the word, that's the actual literal rendering of this passage. And some of you are probably saying and thinking right now, well, Paul, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't know what I'm going through right now. I'm really having a tough time, right? Life is really rough for me, and trials that I'm going through are just so heavy. You've, and you've heard this one, I'm sure. You know, you just haven't walked in my shoes, Paul, or even Terry, right? You haven't walked in my shoes. And to even get more specific, some of you are thinking, you know, I just lost my job. How can I rejoice? How can I be joyful? Or you know what, I just lost a loved one. How can I be joyful in the midst of that suffering I'm going through, right? Or my marriage is in shambles, right? There's all these different things that we say why we can't have joy. But we have to remember here when Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice, where's he at? In prison, right? In jail, right? He's imprisoned, right? Chained to a Roman guard, right? Right? Facing imminent death because of his faith in Christ, right? So he says this, 
as he's living on bread and water, right? And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So Paul is in crisis, right? He's not, he's, God's not doubling his bank account, right? God's not giving him all his desires and wants, and God definitely not, is not giving his best life now, right? No, no. He's in dire circumstances, yet joy exudes and fills his heart, church. And I wonder, what would our church look like if everyone was living that way in Christ, in, this, in the congregation? What if we were all living in Christ that way? What would our church look like? What would our church look like? What would our families look like? What would our workplaces look like? What would our general perspective of life look like if we are living this way in Christ and joy was being produced in us. So the first reality, or the, so a Christian's life then is marked by the fruit of joy. A Christian's life is marked by a fruit of joy. So as we begin Paul's letter to the Philippians, we will see in the future weeks to come, that Philippians is saturated with joy. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Philippians 1.1. Philippians 1.1, and this is where we will be the rest of the time. Now, we'll go to other passages, but we'll, this will be our foundation verse. We're going to only go through Philippians 1.1 today. And it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints with the overseers. And we have to realize here that this introduction stands out compared to other introductions. Let me read to you what it says in Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle of God and set apart for the gospel. Or the letter to the Galatians, Paul says, Paul... An apostle sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And we see over and over again different examples if we look at different churches that Paul continues to have to establish his authority to the other churches. He's continuing to tell them, hey, hey, it's not like I like vetted for this job here, being an apostle of Jesus Christ where people are trying to kill me and I'm struggling in life right now where I'm always being persecuted and going through trials. He's saying, hey, this is God. God, by his sovereignty, caused me to be an apostle of Christ. So he's continuing to say this in the, diff in the other letters. But ironically, when we get to the letter of Philippians, this is missing. This is missing, church. Paul does not try to prove himself as an apostle. He doesn't establish his authority. He doesn't try to prove anything to him saying he's from God. Do we know why that is, church? Do we know why Paul does not have to do that? Well, simply, he had deep relationship, fellowship with them. They knew his heart and he knew their hearts. They spent quality time with one another. They had spent enough time with him to say, this guy is genuine. He is truly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ, right? Because we got to remember back then, there was a lot of false apostles going around at this time, right? So that's why he's always usually having to establish his authority. And they 
knew Paul because he supported them in the beginning on his early missionary journeys. But they had sweet fellowship one with another. So the second reality in Christ church that we learn in Philippians is we can have sweet fellowship one with another. We can have fellowship, sweet fellowship one with another. And I remember my grandmother saying, what, blood is thicker than water, water right? And then she would go on and tell me how I needed to be devoted and loyal to my relatives, the Hoskins family, their blood, right? They're the ones that you've got to be dedicated because they're your blood family. And in a sense, she was right. Because the reality of it is, if we're in Christ, the blood of Christ links us together for all eternity, right? The blood of Christ links us together for all eternity where we should be having that sweet fellowship that my grandmother was talking about. And I know, I know some of you are thinking, the pessimists in the room are thinking, oh man, I have to spend eternity with so-and-so? Oh man, but I don't want you to worry or fret over that because in reality, they're thinking the same thing about you too. Okay? Um, no, I'm just kidding because praise be to God that when we get to heaven, well, I'm not going to sing that one either, but when we get to heaven, right, we're going to be perfected. All our sinful ways and bad habits will be gone. We'll be perfected into the likeness of Christ and praise be to that. So let's continue. Let's get back to verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and servants, servants, Paul and, G, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Literally, the word for servants here is doulos, which means slave. That's the actual right rendering term that we should use when they use in the Greek doulos. It means slave. It means totally dependent on God, right? So as we think about that, Paul relished in the fact that he was a slave in Christ. He was a slave in Christ. It was not something he was upset about because, church, he knew what he was saved from. He remembered how embondaged he was to the sinful nature before Christ saved him, right? Let's hear what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And in this, this section here, Paul is talking to them as they are now trying to live the Christian life, but they're still trying to be enslaved to their old nature as they really struggle with sexual immorality here. And this is what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Paul was telling the Corinthians here that now you're God's possession, you were bought at a price, and now you're his possession, not your own. And by the way, that price was very costly, right? The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior to free us from the bondage of sin, right? That is a huge, costly price. So I ask you, church, were you free before you followed Christ? Were you free before you followed Christ? If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans 6, 16 through 18. That's Romans 6, 16 through 18. You probably want to keep your finger on, Roman, on Philippians 1. 
1. And it says this, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which lead to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul is telling the Roman church here, what? You're either slaves to God or you're slaves to who? Sin and Satan, ultimately, right? We're a slave to sin and Satan. And if we remember back on who we were before we are Christians, maybe we sometimes need to remember what God saved us from. He saved us from things like sexual immorality, right? Like anger, worry, fear, those things that used to have us in such bondage and slavery, right? That's why Paul relished in the fact that he was a slave to Christ. So in the third reality is that in Christ, we are slaves to God. We are slaves to God. And I ask you, church, is your attitude the same as Christ? Do you relish in that fact that you're a slave to God? Or does that sort of rub you wrong? Because truth be known, again, church, you're either slaves to God or slaves to something else, which always leads to Satan. So let's continue on in verse 1, which says, now we're on the second part of verse 1. It says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So I ask you, who is Paul talking to? Who is this letter written to? To the saints, right? To the church. It's to written to a church like ours, right? It's written to where it says the saints in general, and then he specifically points out the leadership, right? The overseers and deacons, right? So finally, the fourth reality we learn that in Christ, the church is healthy. The church is healthy. God's church functions in ways that will honor and glorify him from the saints to the leaders as they are established before God. And Paul specifically points out the leadership in the church saying overseers and deacons. And the Greek word for overseer here is episkopos, which means one who is a guardian or supervisor who guides leads and protects the church. The scripture also refers to these leaders as elders, pastors, and shepherds. But it's the same, it's, it's, let me read my notes here to make sure I get it right. The various names are synonymous for the same position. So the various names are synonymous for the same position. God's word gives this charge to the pastors, elders of the church in Acts 20, 28, when he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God has called Casey and I to this position of overseers at the family church at this time, and it is our job to guide the church in a way that will glorify and honor God and God alone. And I, and I want to say this is a very, this is a, a, a great privilege and an honor. 
But let me be real to you and be honest with you guys that this is a heavy burden also because it says in James 3, what? That we will be judged more strictly for the position that we're in as overseers, right? So our goal or purpose as leaders is to serve, guide, teach, counsel, and pray for the members of the church and that our job as pastors is to minister the word of God to all areas of life, right? And many churches today, I'm sad to say, have their pastors as psychologists, great entertainers and fundraisers and church. Biblically, this is outrageous and shameful as the function of pastors are to shepherd God's people in all grace and truth. That is what we're here for. And, I, and, I, and I'll just say one more thing and try to relax here. Casey and I aren't interested in drawing people because we're hip, because we're cool, because we're traditional, because we're entertaining, relevant, or fun, or whatever ploys churches are using to try to bring people into their building. We are here to be faithful to Christ and to be faithful to Christ alone and shepherd the flock that God gives us, church. That is what we're called to do. And I would say, this is logical because the Bible says this is what happens. If we look back, we looked at, I think, Acts 2, I think it was probably three months ago, but we said, we read that as the church was faithful to God, it said that he added, who's the he? He added to their numbers daily. God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. That's God's job. And guess what? He can do a really good job at it, and we think he can. So we're going to leave that with God to do. So we're excited to be faithful to God, shepherd the flock. And then also the second group of people that Paul mentions is the deacons. As the Bible mentions a plurality of pastors, it also mentions a plurality of deacons. And the Greek word for deacons literally means servants. These are men who love God and others to the point that they are willing to serve to the outward needs of the church community. This would include those that are having health issues or for some other reason need the body of Christ to help and support them. This is a special position, church, that includes sacrifice, personal time that they give up to serve the body of Christ under the oversight of the overseers. And I want to, at this moment, at this point, to take a moment to introduce our deacons to some of you who do not know them. So if the active deacons could come up front here, I would like you guys just to stand up here on the stage and, and I'll say a few more words so it's not awkward. Um, but these, these guys are doing a phenomenal job. A phenomenal job. And we have two more that aren't. Damon's backstage because he's on the worship team. And if you guys come over here. And then we have Pat Kenny, and I don't know. He's out sick. Okay. And then we have these three gentlemen. And let me tell you guys, these men have been serving selflessly before us. Every time there's a need that's in place, they're on it. And they're figuring out situations, how they're going to, you know, meet after work. And I'm thinking what we need to do is I think you guys need to quit your full-time jobs and just work here at the church. <laughs> what do you guys think? 
<laughs> but anyway, I appreciate what you guys do, and um, that's great, guys. Okay, you guys can sit down now. But let's give these guys a round of applause as they are phenomenal. They have done a phenomenal job in Christ Jesus. Oh, look at we got pictures. Here we go. <laughs> Yo, go ahead. Let's... Oh, you want me in the picture? Oh, this is a little. Okay, so we have Bill, Fred, and Jason, and they're just doing a great job. And we'll, we'll begin. In, okay, good. Okay, great. Great, great. Okay. So we are thankful for their service and sacrifice with our church. So in Christ, we have a healthy church that has pastors, deacons, members that all work together for the glory of God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you guys that we will not get away from this perspective of glorifying God and making disciples because that's still our purpose. We're on to another, yeah, we're going on to another series, but our purpose is always the same. It's to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So as we continue to go forward, that is our focus. So speaking of the church, um, I think we mentioned a few weeks ago that we have 12 new members of the family church that we're excited about. We're excited that we have more people grow, coming and being a part of our church as we recognize from the scriptures that when you're a Christ follower, they were usually, well, they were always connected to a local body, local body of believers, right? And and Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this. He said, anyone who is to find Christ must first find the church. How could anyone know where Christ is and what faith is in him unless they knew where his believers are? So church, what I'm saying to you as the scriptures clearly establish is that if you're a Christ follower, you need to be involved in a local church whether it's this one or another one, whatever one that you're comfortable with that's a Bible-believing church, we beg and plead that you get involved because it's important. And I'll, I'll, I'll say a quick plug for our new membership class, which is starting July 7th at 9.45. Our new membership class will be during the Sunday School Core Hour, July 7th at 9.45. And we ask if you're interested, come, come join us. So in conclusion, we learn in Philippians that our lives must be centered on Christ. Our church, our community, our marriages, and individually she should be built on the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. And the first reality revealed in Christ, we grow in joy. We grow in joy. We stop chasing after people and circumstances and we recognize the Holy Spirit is exuding joy from our hearts and we're growing to be more joyful regardless of what we're going through. The second reality of living in Christ is we can have sweet fellowship one with another. That is an amazing thing, church, as we are living in this individualistic society where people can't, are not close at all. The church should reveal something totally different, countercultural. We should be close in fellowship with one another. The third, the third reality we see in Christ is we become slaves to God as we recognize what God saved us from. Saved us from the flesh. We don't have to be in bondage and enslaved to the sinful nature anymore. We can be freed from that and empowered by the Spirit to live a victorious life in Christ. That's why we're called saints, right? Finally, the fourth reality shows us that in Christ, 
We are living in a healthy church community as the congregation and leadership together work in unity and love. It is a beautiful thing to be a part of the church. And the worship team can come up now. But I ask you, church, what is your foundation? Is your foundation living in Christ? Or is it in something else? Are you a slave to God? Or are you enslaved to something else? Right? Because we realize even if we're Christians, we can go back to the old nature. We have many passages, whether we're looking at Ephesians 4, Galatians 3, and on and on, where there's scriptures where Christians actually decide to start living like their old nature instead of continuing the walk in the new nature that they have, right? In Christ. What about, are you committed to God? Are you plugged in and involved in a local church? Because in the Bible, we don't have rogue Christianity, individualistic Christianity. We have people plugged into a body of believers that are actively involved, and that's what we have in the Scriptures to work with. So I ask you, are you living in Christ? Are you living in Christ? Let me encourage you with a quote that I read previously by Andrew Murray, and it says this, Abide in Jesus, the sinless one, which means give up all of self and its life and dwell in God's will and rest in his strength. This is what brings power that does not commit sin. May we be a church that is living in Christ, that is victoriously walking by the power of the Spirit, that is loving those within the, the body of Christ now, but turning Marco Island upside down because you yourself are turned upside down. Right? That's the type of church we need to be for Christ. We have a short time to live for Him today. Let's use our time wisely and be totally dependent on Him. As we read from Paul, as he's sitting in prison, Singing, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That was his attitude. Is that your attitude today? Is that my attitude? And I know often it's not, but we need to be continue to grow, right? Grow and thank him for his grace that still covers us even in our weaknesses, right? Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you, we recognize, Father, that we are desperate for you. We know it's not about our gifts, our abilities, or our personalities, Father. We know that we need to be desperate and dependent on you, and that's the folks that you're going to use for your glory and honor, Father. Help us to be that type of person who is totally saying, I am poor in spirit, I have nothing to offer. Father, come and use me however you want. Help us to be that type of church that walks in, in that type of humility. I thank you for everybody here. I ask a special blessing on everybody here this morning. And if there are those who do not know you, Father, I ask that they confess and believe that you are Christ and repent of their sins, Father. Help them to come to real, living, breathing faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I ask if there are those in the audience that want to hear more on what it means to be a Christ, I, to, I ask, Father, that you allow them to come talk to Casey or I or some of the leadership here in the church and spend some time laboring over what the Scriptures say about you. Help us to be a people who love people and especially love you. We praise and honor you, and it's through Christ's name. Amen.
Que sempre se sinta-se. Ah.